on this episode of The Kinked Wire. You know, what happened was that uh, there was a report that there were several people who had been sick and, and several of them were transported to hospitals. And the next thing we heard was that all of the um, ambulance crews and firemen who'd in, been involved in the transfer were in quarantine. And it, uh, it really seemed kind of crazy. Welcome to The Kinked Wire, the new interventional radiology podcast from SIR's IR Quarterly Magazine. You can learn more at our website, surweb.org slash kinkedwire. And this episode is brought to you by Varian. Learn more at varian.com slash is. In this episode, the first in a series of frontline reports, Kinked Wire host Warren Krakow speaks with Tori Andrews, a Seattle-based interventional radiologist, about the onset of COVID-19 and the role that IR continues to play during its health crisis. So first of all, how are you doing? You know, everything's fine. I mean, my family and I have sort of been locked in at home. You know, they've been out of school, my kids have, for the last uh, two weeks. And my wife's practice has shut down. She's a dentist. And governor of the state of Washington has said that all outpatient procedures, including dental procedures, have to be curtailed. So we're mostly spending time at home trying to keep each other entertained. Yeah. Yeah. We have a similar situation on my end. I, I can certainly relate. But, you know, going back a little bit, you were at ground zero, as it were. I mean, uh, Seattle was the first place where there were cases and things really took off. What was it like there then? It was interesting because, you know, it started in the Seattle area. The first cluster of cases was at a nursing home mm-hmm. uh, about uh, 20 miles from my house. You know, what happened was that uh, there was a report that there were several people who had been sick and, and several of them were transported to hospitals. And the next thing we heard was that all of the um, ambulance crews and firemen who'd in, been involved in the transfer were in quarantine. And it uh, it really seemed kind of crazy. Yeah. But I remember they, there were these news reports about a novel coronavirus. And I thought, you know, what is that? It's sort of very peripheral until we started having the firemen quarantined. You know, then, of course, things really started to take off and it really started to sink in that we were dealing with something major. Did you feel early on as, as things are particularly at the hospital that your group covers or, or maybe when cases started spilling into your hospital as well, did you feel you had what was needed to protect yourself and your team and your staff? Early on, we certainly felt like we had plenty of material because it had never been an issue in the past. You know, when we have patients with active TB or who are being you know, isolated for other things, it's never been a question of whether or not we had enough material. It wasn't until we started noticing boxes of masks missing. We had a briefing with our administration at one point fairly early on in the whole process, we had an eight-day supply of masks, and I was shocked. It never occurred to me that we would not have enough surgical masks. And, and of course, you know, the uh, N95 issue has been a real problem for people, too. Sure. And I, I have mine in a bag, and I use it whenever I need it, but I only have one. Yeah. I mean, I think a lot of us can relate to that. Did you get uh, some of those early cases at your hospital? Pretty much all of the patients from that first cluster from the nursing home who were hospitalized went to another hospital. I think that almost all of the patients initially went to that facility. And is it correct to assume that now there are patients in all the hospitals around Seattle? Oh, yeah. I mean, we got a pretty good distribution. You know, until New York's unfortunate experience, the cluster in the Seattle King County area was the major one. New York, uh, I think, now has 10 times the number of cases that Washington does. But the first several 
hundred cases all wound up being distributed around the Seattle area. Is it fair to say you've certainly seen, perhaps by now, your your fair share of COVID-19 patients? Well, we as a system have. I don't think that there is any particular group of uh, procedures that are more common among patients with COVID. So I don't think that we're seeing nearly as many of those patients as interventional radiologists as our colleagues in the ICU and the ER are seeing. I think that's a great point to just expand upon that there's nothing particular about this horrible illness that would lend itself to uh, being something that IRs could, you know, provide some assistance with that be somehow unique. Yeah, I think there was a lot of thought at the beginning that that we would be um, dealing with pearl effusions and empyemas and it mm-hmm. really has not come into being. I think what what I would say is that especially a couple of weeks ago, and really up until this last weekend, when testing was very delayed, everybody who came in with a fever was basically assumed to be possible COVID patient. So everybody was given the acronym of, you know, PUI for person under investigation. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if you have an abscess or you have a cholecystitis or you do have a, an empyema, you're going to have a fever. So what happened was that we were treating a lot of patients who were under investigation, probably because they get fevers and we treat people who have fevers. Now the testing has gotten so much better just in the last few days that I think that is no longer going to be the case. Given, though, that many of the patients who uh, unfortunately get very sick from COVID ha- happen to have a lot of comorbidities, I wonder if you, just given the density of cases that you've got out there, have you seen procedures that need to be done anyway that happen to be COVID patients? I don't know, a GI bleed or, you know, a trauma or I don't know, whatever. I, I would say that that's a minority of cases. I mean, okay. yes, there, there are patients who come in and who turn out to be COVID positive who do have abscesses that need to be drained and do have uh, effusions that need to be uh, aspirated. But it's more of a coincidental thing, I think, than anything else. And of course, we, you know, you have to consider what's appropriate uh, and what's really emergent. Obviously, if somebody is COVID positive and has unstable upper GI bleeding, they're probably going to come to angio. If they have ascites, they probably aren't. You know, we're going to hold off on, uh, on treating them unless and until it becomes clinically significant. Absolutely. In fact, you know, just sort of talking to colleagues all over, I think that's one of the biggest things we're seeing. In fact, some of my colleagues are saying that, and I don't know if you've noticed this, that their volume's actually gone down as IRs because, well, essentially all elective procedures have been pushed back. I would echo that. I mean, I'd say that our volume overall is down by about 50%. Now, having said that, we still have urgent and emergent cases. I mean, we've done three TIPS procedures in the last two weeks, all for bleeding. Mm. Uh, None of them COVID patients. Okay. We are doing a lot of vascular access and and gastrostomy tubes and things like that, specifically for patients who are in-house for reasons other than COVID and whom we are trying to get out of the hospital with this room for other people. Purely elective cases, we're not doing. We're not doing routine tube changes. We're not doing uh, uterine fibroid embolization for fibroids. We've done a couple of postpartum hemorrhages, sure. but you know, we're not doing any elective outpatient procedures other than cancer therapies. Yes, agreed. I think that's, again, you know, the take that I'm hearing from almost everybody has a very similar experience. It's been my observation from um, SIR Connect and conversations that I've had offline with other people that probably the biggest area of controversy is in, in the management of cancer patients. 
And so I will say, at the risk of maybe getting some negative feedback from people, that we are still doing chemoembolizations and microwave ablations and Y90 because, you know, it's part of a patient's active, ongoing cancer therapy. We're not doing research protocols for cancer therapy, which unfortunately has a tremendous impact on the patients who were part of research protocols. But we are still doing elective outpatient cancer therapies. I think other sites have stopped doing that, and I've sensed some pretty strong feelings among people about whether that's appropriate or not. The position that we've taken is that, especially now that it's looking like this is going to go on more than just a couple of weeks, that you, you really can't just stop treating somebody's cancer. You know, I haven't I haven't seen exactly you've seen on Sire Connect and so on, but you know, I think there's quite a few people who would support that view that, you know, even putting a port in for that matter, you know, I mean, even potentially even doing a biopsy that cancer is a, you know, as we know, a progressive disease, and it is very hard to break up the continuity of that. Concerns that people have raised are, you know, obviously the use of of the masks, the potential for a patient needing to be admitted to the hospital after a procedure. Right. Um, And I think both of those are manageable. The other issue that that people have raised, and I think this one is a little bit more difficult, is, you know, these are patients who are already, many of them, immunocompromised by their treatments. And now we're bringing them to the hospital, which is certainly, they're more likely to meet a patient with COVID or a a caregiver who's been exposed to it than they would be if they stayed at home. And that is a a challenge. And I I think, too, that the patients are feeling like it's a risk that's worth taking. They would rather just sit back and maybe have their cancer grow. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, I, I would think that uh, putting it, um, as, as I'm sure you are, in the, in the patient's uh, court, so to speak, and saying, you know, look, you know, there are the risks of coming into the hospital being immunocompromised, but here's what happens if you don't. And again, you know, you're not talking about varicose veins. You're talking about a, a really serious uh, diagnosis. And, you know, at the risk of kind of diverging off of the IR pathway, I'll tell you that, that my wife, again, she's a dentist, and she's had similar situations where patients are in a process of being treated, and there are things that she would ordinarily do on a certain date after, say, for instance, an implant is placed. There's a certain period mm-hmm. of time before she would do the next step. And what she's done with her patients is just to say, look, this is my normal routine. We can probably skip it for now if you're willing, but if you're uncomfortable uh, with that plan, then we will just go ahead and we'll we'll do what we would ordinarily do. So I, I think it's not just interventional radiologists that are having these kinds of challenges. I think you're right. Do you do diagnostic work as well? No. Interestingly enough, though, one of the guys that I trained with in residency who subsequently went on and became an interventional radiologist, and we were in our fellowships at the same time, has now left interventional radiology and is reading from home for a, a national organization, not because of the COVID virus, okay. just incidentally. So, you know, certainly that goes on the list of things that you, you might want to consider in the future. <laughs> that's that's for sure. And I, I think it, you know, it might be interesting, you know, once the dust settles and, and hopefully that's soon, but um, to look and, and see how we as a specialty and other specialties are impacted by this. Well, you know, it's, it's Interesting that you brought this up because it reminds me of another item that I saw on SIR Connect, which had to do with, or at least the implication was that uh, some folks who do interventional and imaging had decided that during this period of time, they were going to stop doing interventional procedures and only do imaging. And as a result, Hmm. apparently their hospitals were beginning to transfer IR cases to other facilities. Um, But I'm not going to say whether that was a 
the right thing or wrong thing to do, but it certainly is a different angle on the question. Uh, wow. <laughs> I don't know what else to say. I mean, it really brings up a lot of issues and, and things that, yeah, we as a specialty and, and, and again, I mean, you mentioned your wife as a dentist and, other, you know, just other uh, specialties are, are going to have to look at going forward. And you wonder whether there will be, I don't know, certain rules put in place or things like that, you know, in the future for, uh, unfortunately, the next pandemic. It's better to prepare and not need the preparation than the other way around, right? That's right. That's right. Are you getting any sense at all in Seattle that things are slowing down or? Yeah, I would say, you know, we, we're about a month behind China. and We're probably a month ahead of most of the rest of the country. Okay. So I, I think that the exposure in, in uh, Washington was probably early. In fact, there was a, a paper that was published a while back now that suggests that the uh, virus had been circulating in the Seattle area for six weeks before we knew it existed. But I think that we are very clearly at a point in Seattle where the rate of disease progression has slowed way down. Our doubling time two weeks ago was about two and a half days. It's closer to six days now. Okay. The hospital where I work and the system to which it is connected is continuing to develop resources and make space available for ICU patients, et cetera. But the predictions that we're seeing now all suggest that we won't get anywhere near the point where we'll need to use those facilities and resources. Well, that's really hopefully, good to hear. Hopefully, we're about a month ahead of a lot of other places. And so hopefully within two or three weeks, they'll start seeing a slowdown elsewhere. I, I certainly hope so. Yeah, I'm, I'm not in New York uh, myself, but boy, it just sounds awful there. And, and you know, you, you think that unfortunately that could be coming for everybody, but hopefully, you know, we follow uh, the pattern in Seattle and do start to, to slow down uh, coming up. There's a lot of variations that contribute. Washington State has a fairly young population. The median age is, I think, 36. Hmm. Uh, very few smokers. The population other than in Seattle, Olympia, and a couple of other major cities, the population is fairly distributed. You know, I mean, it, most of Washington is pretty rural. So right. we certainly don't have large, uh, we don't have people crowded together on subways. Right. Uh, the other thing is that's worth pointing out, you know, the major or some of the biggest companies in Seattle are digital companies like Microsoft and Amazon. And they went to a uh, work from home strategy almost immediately. I remember so, that. Yeah. Yeah. So, so even though we didn't actually have a, a quarantine order until relatively recently, I think it was March 22nd. The fact is that a lot of people, fairly significant chunk of the population was already working from home. And unfortunately, those things, while they are been, they've been very helpful in Washington, are, are probably not representative of what's going to happen in a lot of other parts of the country. I think that's a really good point. Uh, and as you mentioned, the, the population density in different cities, the way it's distributed is, you know, obviously in places like New York and Chicago and places like that, that's going to be more of an issue than in places uh, which are more spread out. I think Manhattan has the same population as the entire state of Washington. Oh, wow. Maybe not quite, but uh, it, it's certainly a different perfect. environment. Right. We always like to ask a question of all our guests, if there's one thing you could change in healthcare, what would it be? The role of the physician in management of healthcare has dropped to almost nothing. Physicians used to be, for better or worse, the decision makers in pretty much all aspects of healthcare. 
And at this point, you're lucky as a physician if you can get onto the committee that's involved in making decisions for what's going to happen in your hospital. And I think to a certain extent, physicians uh, in a lot of situations are not given the credibility that they need. I think letting the physicians be more involved in administration would be very helpful. That was Dr. Tori Andrews describing the early impact of COVID-19 in Seattle. In the weeks ahead, we'll speak with other IRs around the country on how the pandemic has affected them in their region. For resources you can use in your interventional radiology practice, including a COVID-19 toolkit, visit sirweb.org. We thank Dr. Andrews for his time, Darian for supporting this episode, and you for listening to The King Dwyer. Our host is Dr. Warren Krakow. Our editor is Dr. Jamie Shaw. Our production manager is Dr. Jason Fisher. We hope you enjoyed this episode. If you have any thoughts or ideas for The King Dwyer, drop us a line at irq.surweb.org.